0: Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is Ben Hagani. Ben Hagani has been a real estate investor and operator for over 18 years, and has been actively involved in all stages of building acquisitions, renovations, leasing, and asset management. Ben is currently the president of Steel Point Property Group and the chief revenue officer at Block A. Ben, thanks again for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Hi, John. Nice to be here.
0: And before we get into the juicy stuff. Let's hear a little bit about your background. Um, So where did you grow up and how did you get into this industry?
1: Uh, I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island, which is just outside the city. Um, Real estate was a household topic. My father's in the business and uh, he would talk to us about it at the dinner table. Uh, And when I graduated from undergrad, originally I was going to be in the technology world. And I joined the company called Accenture. Spent one year there doing management and IT consulting. When I decided that wasn't my path, and
0: uh, went back to let's call it the roots, and went into real estate. Great, amazing. And so, what did you? What do you think you'd be doing career wise if not commercial real estate? Would it be technology? Uh, it's it's a great question. Um, I, I
1: I am working in the technology space today uh, and real estate, so I'm already doing both. Right. If I were doing neither. I'm going uh, to throw, throw you a curve here. I would probably be doing something in photography okay? because I just love that. Interesting. But if I could
0: figure out how to make a living out of it, right. I'd spend my time with my family and, and photography. That's awesome. That's yeah. great. And so, so you're a chief revenue officer at Block A. Can you give us a breakdown of what Block A is and yeah. what's the gap filled in the market by Block A? Sure. So Block A is a prop tech company. It's a property technology
1: company. Um, we have created multiple distinct pieces of technology that we have built together to work seamlessly to revolutionize
0: the residential
1: leasing process.
0: Right. And I think you offer a very, very valuable perspective within the company because you're the end user yourself. So what, what kind of uh, perspective and what kind of pain points do you offer to the company that kind of the company uses to grow and be better? Sure. So I'm. I'm. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm. I'm uh,
1: a landlord. I'm an owner, right. which is a client of the business right. that uh, that I'm the chief revenue officer of. So um, I offer that unique perspective, right? A lot of businesses, as they're building and understanding their client, has to look outside, even right. if it's within their own clients. Um, I think one of the benefits I bring to the company is that I am the client. Right. So um, I'm. Uh, able to understand that perspective. I'm able to offer that perspective before our clients uh, will look at us and right. say, hey, why don't you offer this? This is a good idea, uh, which by the way, of course, we welcome that. And they're always going to see things that I don't. Right. Um, but I, I, uh, I put that pressure on myself to identify them before our clients will oh. ever think about it. Um, and and suggest it.
0: So you're conscious of the pain points that you currently face and that you face on a daily basis and you kind of take note of that and, and bring that to block A. Exactly. And what pain points do you currently face that are do you think are not solved by anything in the market? Within
1: uh, within, uh, within like PropTech? Within ResNet. PropTech, um, it's a great question and there are several companies that are that are working at it. It's not something that we're touching at block A at all but I um, I think maintenance requests is mm. probably within prop tech. Mm. And that really is a management uh, angle. But I think maintenance requests, oversight, um, uh, completion, all of that is uh, an area where there are a lot of companies that have uh, come up with solutions. Right. Um, and I have not done extensive research here, but from what I've seen and what I've interacted with, there hasn't been anything that's uh that's knocked my socks off
0: wow okay got it and um over the past so you've seen the progression of block a um, and how Eris cohen has um kind of come in and applied his perspective to grow the company what what advice would you give a prop tech entrepreneur who wants to do the same thing and build something that provides value to the marketplace um, great question. I think the the
1: answer is in your question, right? The word value is, is oh. built into your question. So I think um, the most critical part, number one, is to go deep within a, right. a certain vertical, to understand an industry or a oh. discipline, understand it at its core, and understand where you're creating value, such that um, most real estate owners are not the type that uh, welcome heavy integration and heavy lifts. Um, They just don't want to deal with the headache. They want things to work seamlessly. So for someone coming into PropTech specifically, I would say to be very cognizant of upfront costs, upfront headache. um, What is this going to cost me? What kind of integrations do I need? Uh, And then you need to prove in a a deep quantitative way
0: how you're adding value to your client. So zero into exactly what, the gap is that you're filling in the market and kind of apply your intuition and knowledge of the market to fill that gap and present that to the owner and show them and put yourself in their in their shoes
1: right and and quantify it
0: right so if you
1: just go in and say hey we're we're great we uh you know we manage your property really well cool that that there's no meat to that so um you got to give me numbers like what are you going to do for me give me metrics, give me, give me uh, quantify right. your value added, why I should work with you. And ultimately what all owners are looking for. And, and I will say most owners are not just focused on ROI. It's a lot about relationship. It's mm-hmm. a lot about knowing that the person will be there at the end of the day. Of so if you just go there and all you talk is 2%, 10%, $8 you know, $8 million, you're missing a little bit of the point where right. a lot of real estate owners, uh, especially in this city, have owned real estate for many, many years, some for many generations. So if you're talking to them, you have to know that you're coming up against their relationship that precedes them, their relationship that was their uh, parents' relationship or their grandparents. And the grandparent of the person you're talking to was, was involved with the property before you were. So you need to come in both with a credibility, a trust factor, and then, and then you need to back it all up with serious quantitative results Metrics. that you've already uh, achieved for others and then suggest how you uh, propose to do that for for your, for your pitch. Perfect, 100%.
0: Um, and how does creativity play a role as a prop tech executive? Can you think back to a time where you chose to think differently and think out of the box um, to solve a solution for a problem that you were, or your clients were having?
1: Sure, I mean, I, I would say that uh, our entire company right. was built with that uh, with that thought, where, um, you know, and it goes back to the founder's story, where the way we were founded was, uh, our CEO was, uh, was going to see an apartment and he waited for an hour in the snow and it was freezing cold and right. the super didn't show up and the broker didn't show up and he just dealt with this horrible situation. Um, which is very, very common in New York. Right. Like most people would just say, like, you waited one hour, I waited two hours, Crimea River, right? Like that's yeah. that's the like New York City real estate experience. And you know, what was born out of that was this entire company of like, it shouldn't be so difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, we're constantly innovating. Like we are uh, we, we launched um, internally, we used our, our data team. To launch a first ever comp uh, report mm. that allows us to do it instantaneously. So we plug in an, uh, a, a building address, Great. a unit number, and immediately, and, and I mean, ten seconds later, you have a comp report mm-hmm. uh, with a recommended price for that unit and the comps to support it. So that was uh, when you know I first joined. I said, like, look, our team is spending too much time here. And this is something that, if we're able to crack this, no one else has touched. That yeah. no one else has been able to. Yeah. Um, it's not even our. It's it's not even our business. It's like a, a small percentage of the time our team spends.
0: But if we're able to do it, we're able to reduce our time and create major value for our, for our clients. hundred percent. And are there any other processes that um, you guys are kind of working on at Blockade to automate certain aspects of the business? I mean, every aspect, right? right. So. Um,
1: you know, they there again, it's literally every aspect yeah. of the residential leasing process. So, from AI leasing bots that, that are able to immediately reply in real time uh, to questions asked by prospective tenants um, to scheduling uh, tours. If someone wants to see an apartment using the Block A app, you're either able, if the apartment is already vacant, then the person who's interested in touring the apartment will call them the prospect. Right. Prospect is able to just download the app. Go to the apartment and let themselves in. That is automation. 100%, yeah. Um, and then if the apartment is occupied, they're able to go into the Block A app again. Once verified, they're able to see the available show times. Click on a button and and book Amazing. their appointment. That's perfect. Yeah, it's it's cool.
0: And what do you think is next for prop tech? Um, what do you think is going to be the trend that everyone jumps onto in the next decade? Oh, it's such a good question.
1: I mean, we're we're at such an early, early stage of the prop right. tech game. Um, it, it's, it's a big blue ocean, as they say, it's, it's wide open. Right. Um, it's what attracted me, frankly, to getting involved in the space. It's like buying real estate in New York City and then in like 1905, yeah. like we have so much growth and it's really in every space, like um, from property management, um, underwriting and due diligence. Uh, construction tech, like most of the money being focused on construction mm-hmm. technology, is on ground up, big buildings. But how about like you know for a New York owner, a local uh, uh, operator, a, a, an alt two uh, job where it's a smaller renovation? Right. How about those types of renovations where it's just you know fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollar renovation? There's no real tech that that solves that that any of those spaces um, fully. And there are people working on it, so I'm uh, very confident that in 10 years we're going to be sitting here talking about many, many uh, publicly traded companies right. that are forming right now or within the next five years or last five years.
0: And why do you think it has taken so long? Is it because is it you think, like you mentioned earlier, that um, property owners are slow to adapt to these trends and slow to adapt to these new technologies when they have systems that already work? It's a lot of that. I mean, I think I
1: think actually uh, I am a New York owner, so I'm throwing myself under the bus uh, uh, here. But I'll say that I think New York is actually one of the slower markets right. to adapt new technology. Right. And the reasons for that, I, I think a lot of, you know, New York is, is, uh, is a town where people have been investing in for decades and, and generations. Right. Whereas, um, and there's a lot of existing inventory here of buildings being traded so you have people that have owned buildings for again many decades yeah. and they're low leverage they are making a good return you know if you ask someone who's operated their business for 50 years and do very well doing it that way hey why don't you use DocuSign? right right like instead of getting a, a, a tenant that is signing a lease to come to your office to sign a lease use docu yeah. it's the it's like the simplest You know elevation from email you know like we went from like fax to internet email okay great we're doing well go to docusign right and they'll say no 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 no. i i won't do that i need someone to sit in front of me to sign the lease right some people are just uh just like to do things the way they've done them
0: and do you think that landlords that are not kind of kind of slow to adapt this are going to be left behind in the the next multiple decades where everyone is kind of just going to have automated processes for everything I do. I think when you look at real
1: estate, obviously it's the largest yeah. asset class in the world, yeah. and and what you uh, what you know is that it's thirty years ago it wasn't even in, an institutional grade investment. Right. Maybe Forty years ago, maybe more, but over the last few decades, yeah. you see more and more allocation yeah. from from to from a, an institutional investor's portfolio to real estate, yeah. and what does that mean? Thinning margins. Yeah. It means that we're trading on smaller margins. It's a more sophisticated asset class, and so yeah, if you're not noticing the trends and if you're not uh, operating, you know, at the at, at the best you possibly could, um, then then your 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 returns will just be less. And it goes back to you know to me, it goes back to leverage. So if I'm low levered enough, I don't need the best margins in right. the whole world, and the next building can operate better. But if I'm making enough. I'll stick with what I got, um, but but yeah, the trend obviously is moving in that direction. 100. And as new generations come into family-owned businesses, most of them see the the benefit there, to uh, to operate and and make most efficient their right. existing assets. Uh, why not? You know, there's no reason not to uh, reduce overhead, reduce operating expenses, maximize rent roll, and 100%. be efficient.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I want to ask about how, um, so you did your master's at NYU, uh, for real estate, looking back, what value did you gain this, from this program? And how do you apply this program to your career today? Um, I love NYU, um, NYU.
1: I, so it took me five years, right. um, because I was doing it part time. And, uh, for me, NYU gave me a lot of the basic building blocks that I use every single day. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I get excited by looking at nice bricks. I get more excited by a good Excel like, right. model, Especially. and my love for that literally became a thing during uh, NYU. Great, and um, and and working through models, understanding that, yeah. understanding capital markets on like from a professor who is actively working as a as a debt capital advisor right. to me was priceless. So. I loved NYU. NYU, uh, I know you're at Columbia, mm-hmm. so I'm sure there's great things uh, to say about Columbia. Yeah. But what I liked about NYU is, I don't know exactly what percentage it is now, but when I graduated in 2010, majority of the professors were adjunct. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if that's so still the, the case. They were in the field. Yeah, which yeah. means they're they're actively in the field, yeah. which I loved right my my very first semester, uh, my law professor was Matt Kassendorf, mm. still a good friend, only good things to say. Um, and and, you know, he'd come into class and he would not give us like some like template lease form to he'd study give you real examples. He'd redact an existing lease that he signed that right. day or that week, and he would give it give us that Amazing. lease. and he would talk about hot button issues today, you know, whether it was local law, um cam, like. What are the things that are important today that maybe weren't as relevant yesterday? So, uh, to me, NYU is awesome,
0: amazing. And do you think a young professional should do this program straight out of college, or should they work a couple of years, get some experience under their belt, and then do the program? It's
1: a great question. I think I, the way I did it is is all I is all I know. Mm. I did it um, basically right out of college, right. but I did it part time. And so I really loved that, and and to me it was a lot more um, uh, like real yeah. because I was interacting. Like uh, my my cap- my economics class was in was in I want to say 2007, right before the Great Recession. Right, and my professor Pamela Hannigan, who I'll never forget, uh, would kind of told us like it is an inevitability. Mm. That we're going to head into the biggest recession this country has seen plan accordingly right and i was actively doing deals at that time i was buying buildings uh i was doing a few different things then but uh it changed the course of my of my career
0: so you think pro- programs like this are super valuable because you have mentors that are kind of 30 40 years ahead of you who are telling you you know current situations that you can adapt to and overcome sure yeah and how did you learn the skills associated with being a leader? Is this something you were born with or did you develop this as you went through your career? Um, great question. I, I, uh, uh, I, I think I've
1: always kind of gone in that direction. Right. Um, I've always liked that type of role. I remember being in high school and they had a program for peer leadership, right. which the first time ever that you could do this was when I became a senior. And you'd come to school half an hour, an hour early on Wednesday mornings. And you would have a group of freshmen. Uh, this was in high school that right. you would like talk to. And, you know, I signed up for it. The first minute I could sign right. up for it, I thought it was just like very cool, very fun to be able to give back. And, That's awesome. and uh, you know, like if I've been able to learn anything and I can share it to someone so that what took me three te- steps takes someone one step. Cool. So. 100%. I've always
0: uh, I've always liked doing it, and when given the opportunity, I've always, uh, great, gone for it, took yeah. charge. And if you had to boil it down, what would you say makes a good leader and a good principal? Um, I think it's it's
1: a couple of things. I think number one, it's number one. You have to, and and this is in no specific order, but uh, you have to be very clear on what the company's goals are. Right your team's goals, um, where they, how they support the company goals, um, your personal goals, and understand that in a deep way. Second is you have to listen. You have to listen to all of your colleagues, all of your peers, people who are uh, other team leaders, those who are on your team, um, and, and listen and identify what they like, what they don't like, So first, it's to listen and then to boil it down to be able to to create the culture, which is insanely important, um, and and the environment that allows your team to succeed. Because if you're ignoring those things and just expecting them to do things and then you're upset that they didn't solve the goal that you didn't uh, 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 communicate and set, well, then you're going to fail. Um, and also setting goals. That's right. that's a key one, right? It's not just company level goals, high level goals, mm. but every person should have their own their own goals, of
0: course. Um, and that's something to to work towards. And as far as setting setting up this culture, how do you go about? What are the steps you you took to kind of help set up this culture within your company? Um, step one, it's
1: who who you who you bring in. Hire, yeah. Uh, so it's bringing in people that are. Like-minded right. and and have like uh, and have have something in them. It's right. not something that's trained or taught at the outset, day one. It's just someone with that kind of disposition or nature. Right. And number two, just bringing it every day, right? Like part of what we do at our company, every single Tuesday and every Thursday, we bring office to the lunch. Great. So like, you know, it's remote. People are working a few days a week from here, there, whatever. Tuesdays and Thursdays, we all come to the office. Sometimes we talk shop at lunch and that's okay too right. if that's just the natural uh, uh, tendency of the conversation. But it's really just to like sit around a table and chat and get to know each other mm. and
0: spend more time with each other on a personal level. 100%. And what what hard and soft skills should young people work on uh, to prepare themselves for what they're about to come against in their career? Um, I, I love...
1: I love having, uh, you know, If so one thing I'll say about hard skills and even soft skills, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. Right. So a hard skill, if you're in a certain space, like if you are, you know, you love the financial side of underwriting a deal, Mm -hmm. know Excel. Know every single thing there is to know about Excel. Go all the way deep into it. Become obsessed with it. So that when someone, when you yourself are underwriting a deal, you're able to create all the scenario analyses and and uh, understand what the refi in year seven or that are, know that cold so that you're fluent in that yes. um, and soft skill. I would say um, pay attention. Mm. Um, I think that just being aware of 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 the conversation, being aware of uh, like the environment that you're in is really important so it's not just like um you know what I, what uh, an expression i use which uh i'm not a sports guy in like any way and it's a sports expression so it's it's funny who uh-huh. <laughs> people know me but i would say move without the ball okay understand where the markets are heading or right. where your where your profession is going and understand is this the direction that i want to go in is this deal the right deal i want to do again moving without the ball mm. right so like if you love the hospitality market, what's the right play on that market? Right. Understand what's happening. Should I go luxury? Should I go budget? Should I go mid-tier? Do I want to go franchise? Like understand the nuance there and again, move without the ball.
0: I think that's so valuable for young, young professionals watching this. Um, and I want to ask what, let's say somebody wants to be a real estate entrepreneur, whether that be in PropTech or they want to be a landlord, they want to be a private equity sponsor, whatever it is, would you recommend for them to work at a big shop like CBRE or J- and JLL for a couple of years or do it straight out of college and learn as they go? Um, there is a,
1: uh, going straight out of college and doing it means that someone has the financial wherewithal, right? right? So that's that's kind of like, I would say the first question, like. Does that person have the ability to withstand several years of, of no income right? Um, or even you know if you're investing in deals, it's not just no income, but you're investing in deals. you, you have to anticipate dead deal costs, right. et cetera. What uh, assuming that's not a, a non-issue mm-hmm. for someone, I'd say that the other the benefit of working at one of these you know you know uh, blue chip uh, real estate companies, yeah. Is that they're giving you the building block foundation that you're able to then use for the rest of your career. Of course. And, you know, like the JLLs of the world have been here for, you know, again, generations. They understand things that if I'm a 22 year old, I may not know those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a big benefit there. And frankly, there's a big benefit to making a career out of that. Right. I chose not to, that was just not the path for me. Um, but I don't think there's anything, frankly, wrong with with making a career of that.
0: Right. So you think even for somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur, it's beneficial to kind of have that fast track with like the JLLs of the world where they kind of show you what not to do and what sure. to do.
1: I will say that uh, if someone has that entrepreneur spirit and they're willing and able to take the risks, right. go take the risks. When you're 22 or something, that's your time. Right. Um, I always say like, uh, part of our culture, our company culture, um, is to try. Right. And I'll take that a step further. If you don't fail, that is the failure. Right. Okay. That is the, if you don't take a chance doing something that you're not sure if it's going to work, then, then that, and, and if you, if every single thing you do works, then you're one in a billion, right? Like that's amazing. Um, there are ideas that we come up with all the time that I'll, that I'll say, I don't love it, but we should obviously do it. Right, right. Like that's that's how you figure things out. Um, do
0: you think you and, learn more from failures than you would learn from success? Uh, no, I I, uh, <laughs> I think common uh, people love to say that. I
1: think when something works and you and you feel something click, right. there's a there's something that you learn from that awesome. um, and. Yeah, and I I learned, uh, trust me, I've tried a bunch of things that didn't work. And when that falls down, you learn from that also.
0: 100%. And uh, walk us through what Steel Point does. Uh, What kind of properties do you acquire? And what's the kind of business plan with Steel Steel Point? Sure. So Steel Point Property Group, I formed uh, exactly 10
1: years ago. Um, It is a value-add real estate acquisition company. Um, historically we've bought multifamily value-add properties in New York city. Mm -hmm. Um, the business plan that, uh, we've always held. And there's a couple of things here. The main, the main, main, main piece of it is, is, uh, So I I put it into two buckets. One Mm. is everything related. By the way, this applies to dating too. But number one is all related specifically to the property. Right. So it's uh, 10,000 square feet. It's 20 units. It's got retail. It's got, you know, taxes are 100,000. That's 50% of the store. All of that, you know, there's uh, a leaking boiler. Mm. There's asbestos in apartment 3A. All of that, which some people would call 100% of the deal, I put that at 50%. Mm. The other 50% of the deal is the story behind the bricks. Mm -hmm. So who owns it? Mm -hmm. When did they buy it? Why did they buy it? What did they do for the term that they bought it? If they only owned it for a couple of years, who owned it before them? And then all of that is part of the story. But then the main piece, why is the seller selling? And to me, it's like, you know, when I'm looking at a deal, I'm looking at the property address and I'm asking the story. Right. Those are like the two most important pieces for me. And then we'll get into square footage and, yeah. and
0: and value add potential and all that. And what what question do you think buyers sometimes neglect to ask sellers? Is it that question of why are you selling? Um, I can't speak for what um, most buyers aren't
1: doing. Right. Um, I mean, that's to me like uh, probably one of the most important pieces of, of any deal. It's like, why is that seller selling? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean it makes the deal good or bad. It's just to understand how the property was treated yeah. during their term, right? Before I ever lay a foot there. If you tell me that it's an absentee owner, it was owned by the person's uh, predecessor. That person passed away. The owner is now absentee. There's a property management right. that's like a smaller shop. That the super is off-site. You you hear certain things. Right. You don't even have to show up to the property, and you'll say, okay. There's mismanagement here. Mismanagement is an opportunity right. and it's a liability. So uh, you have to understand and, and uh, put a put a price on that. Got it. Um, and alt- I like when when there is that, but sometimes the liability is just too large, right. and the seller is uh, not in touch
0: with the size of that liability and not willing to uh, come to that reality. Understood. And how much would you say of understanding the story? comes down to the numbers. You mentioned all these other um, aspects of the building, understanding the story, like in terms of why is the seller selling, stuff like that. So, how much of it comes down to NOI cap rate?
1: None of it. The story, the story, all leads to opening your eyes before right. you get to yep. the building, before you really uh, underwrite it. Um, and then, you know, specifically, I've been a multifamily uh, buyer, mm-hmm. and uh, since 2019, the the paperwork is like uh meaning the 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 legalization of of destabilizing units right. is the story so
0: understanding that mm, got it and what what value add strategies does steel point um employ that may be seen as unconventional or like out of the box
1: um so first in terms of like what i look for as part of like i will not do a deal unless um i need i need uh, I underwrite to a 3x mm. on on rent growth. If I don't see a 3x on rent growth potential, out of the gate, it's not really for me. If something is severely mismanaged and I'm, or if it's mismarketed, mm. and I'm able to buy it, you know, cheaper, right? Then then I don't necessarily need to get that 3x. Um, in terms of value add strategies, I, I, it's pretty simple, right? There's 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 not a ton of magic here. Um, it's maximizing uh, your rent roll while trying to reduce your operating expenses. 100%. One area that I that I focus a lot on that I think is low-hanging fruit um, is, is water. And a lot of uh, owners try and, when they buy a building, they look at the water expense mm. as either a fixed expense or it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I look at it very differently. I had an experience 15 years ago with a building where the water bill was, I want to say it was like $140,000, $150,000 or wow. something. And when I understood the uh, the metrics of that building, I said, this this is way too high. And mm. I was looking at my operating bills and I was saying, this is way too high. It was a building we had just bought. Right. So I didn't have operating history to judge on. So then I started a program. So I looked at every single unit. I had my super go through all of our common areas. And I got that bill down from $150,000 down to like fifty thousand dollars, awesome. something like that. That's great. So a hundred thousand dollars in reduction in opex, you put a five cap on that. I added two million dollars in building in building value, right. uh, even though in that market it was probably like a three or four cap, but at a five cap, I added two million dollars in building value by focusing on water. Just the water, yeah. And that's since awesome. then, again, that was fifteen years ago. That's like one area that I go into, and uh, and I, I also have a this this feeling on on water it's like the devil right if there's a leak you're losing money on the water yeah. you, you have um you have damage to the unit you have damage to other units uh you have potential mold and health concerns mm-hmm. for your for your tenants so to me if i hear a leak i go crazy i say a leak should be solved within right. minutes not hours
0: and would you say that over time you've kind of been better and better at picking up on these small things like such such as water these small things that you can add go in and add value in um, yeah. I mean,
1: the more you are involved in a certain space, the more you're going to uh, see the nuance right. and you're going to understand where you can bring and add value to it. Right.
0: 100%. And I saw on Steel Point's website that the company employs an entrepreneurial style, which allows you to act quickly and reactively to the market and deal level situations. So walk us through what this means and how do you leverage this to achieve above market returns? Sure. So we're
1: not a fund where it's uh it's uh, all the capital we raise is, right. is always yeah. private mm-hmm. and it allows us to be nimble so um you know i've closed deals in weeks and where others would need more time um i've signed contracts hard contracts in weeks where again other others would have asked for, for diligence month, yeah. would have taken their time for it yeah. etc so it's about having um capital available to you and i'm a syndicator so it's it's not just my own capital um i'm putting five to twenty percent uh into any of my deals but it's it's uh having the right partners that believe in you that you've earned their trust so that when you say it's a deal we've never talked about you've never seen it right i need a hard deposit to come in with me or i've already signed the deposit i've already signed the contract i've funded a deposit um, and we're closing in 45 Amazing. days yeah. i need you to come in with me you need to have built that credibility yeah. with with uh your investors that believe in you of course and which by the way it, as many times as i've done it it's so much easier to invest your own money than someone of course. else's it's yeah. it's uh as many times as i've done it and and thank god always successfully it's still like uh you know, you'll know, you take much more risks yeah. with your own money than you would with someone else's. You can so, be way
0: more aggressive because with an investor, you're worried about them losing their money and your reputation and stuff like that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So do you do any development nowadays or is it all just acquisition? These days, I'm focused on Block A. So these days, my my
1: majority of my time, 90% of my time is, right. is focused on building and
0: growing Block A right. um, I, and then managing the buildings I own. Okay, 100%. And how do you go about setting concrete goals for yourself and for your company? Um,
1: so first, I think that there there's two different answers. So SteelPoint has a different uh, uh, like a. Goal setting then parameter than, than block A. Yeah. So Steel Point, it's my own company. Frankly, if I don't do anything, any new deals in a year, it doesn't matter. Like it's it's just it's up to me to decide if I want to do deals or right. not. Um, but for the company for block A, uh setting goals is is not as easy as you think. Um, you know, if you asked a group of 10 people, come up with personal goals for yourself, whether it be like Number of times I'll go to the gym this week. I, I just, I tend to think in, in health related things right. when I think about goal setting, but like journaling or, or, um, or uh, like exercise or diet or whatever, tell anyone to set a goal. Most people will set a goal that they probably won't achieve, not mm. because they didn't work hard at it, but because we're always out. setting goals that are probably a little too far out, right? So like my goal is to go to the gym four times a week. I've uh, failed this goal for the last I don't know uh, I don't know eight months, which is how old my my daughter is. So uh, I failed this goal. Like I just have totally missed that goal. Right. Um, so so yeah, I think I think setting goals is a tricky business. And what I like at a company level is that we're setting goals for the company that we're then debating internally so when you have like an accountability partner right in your goal again let's say let's say your goal john is to exercise four days a week mm-hmm. just let's say that's it <laughs> if i were your accountability partner on that i'd call you did you work out today no well that's your second no this week your next five days right. you have to work out four out of the five days you have someone that's checking in with you to make sure it's happening right. for a company level goal setting those goals you have some history, so you have some idea of understanding uh, what what you're able to achieve. But more importantly, you're, you're able to understand that by setting these goals, what levers you're then you're then uh, creating for the future. Mm, so okay. we're a VC-backed company, Block A, yeah. and in order to raise our next round of funds, we need to meet certain metrics. Right. So I wouldn't say that the company is building to uh just solve for that but that's important you need to answer to uh what the market is expecting of you in certain regards so um measure your success like if you're able to succeed in this way what will happen Mm. so like one metric we don't track uh it's not it's not a main kpi for us key performance indicator Mm -hmm. for block a is uh like uh, monthly use Mm. users it's not the thing that's the most important thing for us. Right. Is it very important for us? Absolutely. But is it top three? No. Um, and and coming to that decision is something that we'll debate as a company to to decide that. Got it. 100%. Yeah.
0: Interesting. And what idea do, do you believe, whether grounded in data or intuition, that many people you respect disagree with you on?
1: It's a it's a it's a good question. It's a great question. I'll I'll go back to um, steel point to answer this question. So that's the real estate acquisition right, side. Yeah. So uh, a common adage about real estate is it's all about location, right? Like that's like something everyone you'll right. say, whether it's your grandma who lives in Tulsa or a New York City season real estate investor. It's it's about location. Um, I disagree. Okay. I think it's all about timing. Mm. Timing. If you look at the vintage of a real estate deal, Mm. you, anyone could just say like, that guy made a lot of money or not a lot of money. Again, there are exceptions to every rule. You could buy it cheaply at a hot time in the market. You could pay too much at a low point. There's always exceptions to that rule. But vintage often tells you a lot about what was going on in the market Mm. and assuming it was a market rate deal uh vintage tells all so i think um while while uh it's impossible to time any deal uh to the right point in the market um understanding that is uh is is uh kind of that is the tide that is what will what can right your wrongs right. as an operator, as an investor, um, and it can right your rights. Right, like yes. you can be the best operator in the world, and if your timing
0: is impeccable, you'll be triple ex- right. uh, uh, successful. And do you think that with more and more experience, your timing gets better, or is it based on luck mostly?
1: Um, I have a thing against luck. I don't, I don't like to believe in luck mm. because then it then it suggests that it's someone may have. An advantage of over me or vice versa for some cosmic force um i believe in believing don't get me wrong (laughs) i believe deeply in believing um i i do think there is power in that uh but i think that um i i do think that doing something more times Mm -hmm. um is something that gives me an advantage to understanding a little bit about what could happen next right
0: understood and how do you recognize an opportunity that you want to go big on? Is it based on data or is it based on intuition?
1: Uh, a great question. And, and this was something that, uh, you know, I, I learned from, you know, one of my first jobs where I was working with a very large real estate investor in, in New York. And, um, you know, I was at NYU and I was getting my master's mm. degree and I was learning Excel. And again, I'm an Excel guy, right? So I see a deal, I'm putting in Excel, I'm underwriting it. Five year forecast that are doing all of it, and I'm like, just it was probably the most ugly model (laughs) now looking back on it. it But to me, it was like the coolest thing I've ever done. But I'm, I do all this modeling, I don't sleep for two days, come out with the number 30 million dollars. Right? I take it to my boss, my partner on that deal, actually, and I bring it to him and I say, We're looking at this deal. And he looks at it and he goes, 30 million dollars and he did it in four seconds i said whoa wow (laughs) it just took me two days to get there how did you how like where are you coming from i think that um having a gut feel of numbers Mm. and having like uh seeing the numbers and seeing the Mm. potential of an opportunity is something that that grows as you do a couple of deals and Mm. you get a little bit of like your your arms and head around how things should work mm. um and then underwriting it i think is important too i think what's what's interesting for me personally is being a numbers guy being an excel guy and then coming into like vc-backed businesses right. for the first several years of a business you're not using excel to underwrite your deal yeah there is no underwriting the the intuition is your underwriting solely Mm. um and it's been interesting for me coming into the space where you know uh where i would say that i i never didn't use it but i never used it exclusively like i am today at the stage of the company we're at with block a but now we're we're growing so we're able to actually like put that quantitative uh analyses against how we're operating Mm -hmm. and then we're able to see our future
0: so do you think at block a when you first joined it was like kind of out of your comfort zone to be fully intuition based fully belief based um because in the in the past it was different
1: for sure i mean there was a lot that was out of my comfort zone when joining block a it was uh, it's a technology company right right? it's the technology is aimed at improving real estate and property uh which is i know that second part really really well but uh being as being part of a technology company was totally out of my comfort right. zone. I love it, um, and the le- learning curve was extremely steep at first. And there are still things that I'm learning every day. But if we're not good at stepping out of our comfort zone, then I mean, then to 100%. me, that's that's a missed opportunity. Yeah,
0: I agree. What has been um, the most difficult point in your career, and how does that shape you shape you as an individual from that point on? Uh,
1: most difficult. So um, it's funny. I mean, I've had a couple of points that were that were very difficult. I'd say that um, coming out of college, mm. it was still like I graduated '03, uh, and we still had the uh, the remnants of the dot com burst, uh, 2008, nine, ten. That was the Great Recession. Yeah. Um, I've seen a bunch like some cycles. I've seen some different points in the market. To me, I think I would say like the hardest point in the market um, was June 14, 2019 mm. when the rent regulation laws changed yeah. in New York City for multifamily owners. Yeah. And to me, it was, you know, the rug was pulled from under us. And it was all I did, right? That was all I focused on. So now all of a sudden, <laughs> the, the risk profile of the deals I was looking at and I had $60 million worth of deals yeah. on their contract at that time. Not hard contract, thankfully, but I, was, I had $60 million deals that, w- that, was, that I was ready to buy. And obviously I backed out on 100% of them. Right. I haven't bought another building since. And um, to me, that was a very hard thing to say that the thing that I've been training for, that I've been doing all this mm. time, the, the rules of the game have changed. So real estate as an asset class still the best asset class to own, period. Real estate in New York City, to me it's the most uh, kind of resilient market in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Infinite downside protection from a a rent perspective, like there is so much demand to live here. Occupancy other than COVID is always hovering in the upper 90s, 90s, right? So like as an asset class and as an investment, it's still a sound choice. Uh, but from a value add perspective, it got laced with a whole bunch of risk that I felt mm-hmm. at that moment very uncomfortable with.
0: Understood. So, um, how important are politics in the real estate game, and how how do you position yourself to protect yourself when the government comes in and does something like that? So, uh, politics,
1: local politics, are uh, are not important until they are. Um, And, uh, you know, I would say that prior to 2019, the real estate industry as a whole Mm -hmm. didn't really, uh, I mean, you know, we wrote our checks to CHIP and Mm -hmm. to uh, some other uh, landlord lobbyist groups, but we're not so politically involved. Post-2019, there's a new movement uh, in town because they're seeing a lot of this legislation really come down. So New York City real estate owners are used to, you know, like new local laws, new taxes, but when legislation starts discussing um, <clears throat> taxing vacant retail space, like whoa, what are yeah. we doing here? It's 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 getting it's getting out of hand, you know. Uh, good cause eviction, which is another term for universal rent control. When you understand how legislation can uh, can seriously harm your real estate, yeah. then you become a lot more aware of it. Um, and I certainly have. Uh, so it's very important to. Uh, vote stay aware of of where politics are going and and how it could affect your real estate
0: and do you think it's ever going to shift in the favor of the like because right now it's not in favor of the landlord do you think it ever will shift in that direction and what needs to happen for it to go that way um it's it's a it's a great
1: question and probably um Politics in general are, are always seesaw, right? Mm. So it goes too far in one direction, then it goes in the other. Mm. There are many who believe that there will be a full rollback of, of the 2019 uh, regulations. Yeah. I'm not so confident, I don't know. Um, I operate in the environment that I'm in right. and I, I, I use this as the as the framework to decide whether I want to proceed. What happens politically from here? I don't know. I think it's moderated a little bit since uh, twenty nineteen, but the future is is uh, very much an unknown. Yeah,
0: got it. And how do you vet business partners? <clears throat> What's the telling sign that you should should or shouldn't work with someone? Um. the The first, most important
1: part of anyone you work with is you have to like them. Right. You have to respect them. Right. You have to trust them. You know, to say that, oh, we'll have an agreement, da-da-da, who cares? Yeah. Agreements, if you're looking at agreements, you've already you've already uh, gotten to a bad place. Yeah. So respect the person you're working with, like you're the person you're working with. Uh, that's step one. Mm-hmm. Two, um, what the paper should say, and more importantly, the spirit of the deal should be uh, an alignment of interests. So pick a business partner who wants what you want. Mm. If you're looking let's just say to buy an office building and your vision of it is that we're at a low in the office market mm-hmm. and in seven years from now it'll be great and this is a this is just an Arbon timing don't get an investor that's looking to it's do a aligned, quick, quick yeah. flip in six months mm-hmm. again if you choose to do that together in six months right. great and you and it makes economic sense and you're in alignment great but on day one you should be in alignment of interests of goals
0: and the paperwork should support, right? That. So um, for you, the number one thing is alignment of strategy day one. You have to make sure that's... it's to like the yeah. guy or go or okay. gal. Okay.
1: Uh, is to is to have a, a professional liking right. and respect for them, right. and uh, and and hopefully some sort of value add. Um, and step two is to have that alignment mm-hmm. in strategy and business plan okay. that you support one another. Mm-hmm. Um, again, knowing that you're you're. By its very nature, dealing with a constantly shifting macro micro environment. Mm-hmm. So, if you believe the timing is right to sell after seven years when you projected three,
0: yeah, okay, that's okay. You're allowed to deviate the plan, From the, yeah. but have the plan. Yeah, got it, understood. And who were your role models and mentors um, when you were coming up in the industry? Um, Maybe Larry
1: Silverstein. Mm. I'll say. Uh, I mean, it's a guy that's just stand the to- stand the test stood the time. test of time. Uh, so if I had to say someone, who's also I'm um, I'm involved. I went to NYU, which he's very involved in. Mm-hmm. I went. I was part of UJA for many years, which he's very involved in. Right. Um, and he's just a. Uh, I love his attitude. Uh, always positive. Always making really big bets. Um, and, and so, and just, again, he stood the test of time, right? right. Like he's done it. He's been building for, for so many decades. You got to respect that. Right.
0: hundred percent. And I saw on your LinkedIn that you were a member of UJA uh, since 2007, January, 2007. How important are organizations like this for finding these mentors and finding these people that you can look up to and they can offer you advice? Um, I mean, all... Business as
1: as a whole is all about people, right? Right. Any anyone will will say that their business, whatever it is, we're sitting here in a studio. the The owners of this studio will say it's about the people. It's right. not. I have the nicest microphone. Right. Someone else has the microphone. It's about relationships yeah. and people. So if you're going to be successful in in any venture, you need to be aware of what other people are doing. You need to surround yourself with the best people. You need to be engaged in in in, in sophisticated, mm-hmm. elevated conversations, and the only way you're going to do that is by meeting people. and Networking groups as a whole are great. 100. percent I like UJA. I like other philanthropic slash networking groups because it's a double benefit, right? right? You're you're supporting a really good cause, and and uh, and then benefiting
0: you know yourself through through networking. Understood. And. What would you say drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, or philanthropy? And when would you say you succeeded? Um, what motivates me today is
1: is my family. I would say for sure. Um, you know, thank God I'm I'm married. Thank God I have three uh, beautiful children. And for me, it's what motivates me is just doing things that um, that hopefully will make them proud of me um and can provide for them mm. so that's entirely Amazing. you know that that's a big part of what motivates me um i don't see success as an endpoint. i see success as a mindset mm. and uh, a, a a daily way of approaching life right um i define success as growing so by its nature i don't i don't see an end point for right. that like Lifelong if, journey. if i if i had reached all the financial goals i had ever set out to achieve mm-hmm. then that's okay great but to me success is defined by growth perfect so it's grown spiritually mentally physically my four times a week at the gym maybe i'll i'll start doing that at that <laughs> point but that's that's how i define success awesome. as an ongoing
0: pursuit amazing and i have my final question to wrap it up cool what advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? Um,
1: what advice would I give to my 22-year-old self about life, life business, and relationships? Um, stay positive. Mm. Always be the best version of yourself. Um, always, I, I can't say that. Always be the best version of yourself. So, uh, again, dating, um marriage uh being a a father uh parent um uh, reaching whatever level you want professionally be the best version of yourself Mm. so work really hard work really smart first then work hard uh and uh and always look to to try and be that the the best version of yourself.
0: Amazing. Ben, thank you so much. This has been super valuable. I hope that young professionals watching this will get some value from this and apply it to their career moving forward. Amazing. Thanks, Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Great.